Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zerl. And with me, as always, is my... Oh, my God. What are, Okay, I'm Bob Zerl. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick. Jesus Christ. One week away, and I lost everything. Uh, I apologize to those listening at home. I apologize for missing last week, and I apologize for doing a terrible intro. Uh... Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone's a Critic Podcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is CriticsPod. Uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa, all your podcatchers. Watch us on YouTube. We're live usually Monday afternoons, evenings, uh, about 7 or 8 o'clock Central Time. Uh, if you rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, we'll read your review on the air, and the next person to do so will receive a copy of "I Spit on Your Grave" the the was it the fortieth anniversary Blu-ray 4K anniversary edition. Uh, it's a seventy dollar value, I believe. Uh, so it's a very nice package. Uh, you can listen to our us discuss it at Patreon.com/slash/CricksPod. It's also the best way to help support the podcast. You can also listen to our music reviews of bands like Nirvana, The Beatles, and Metallica. For all that information, head back over to our social media that I mentioned earlier. Critics Pod is, a, is our handle. And then TeePublic, if you want some of our merch, head over to TeePublic.com and search Critics Pod or go to IHateCritics.net and click on the TeePublic link. All right. Got that out of my system. I apologize. That was awful. But sometimes <laughs> no, no, you did you did great. You recovered. You recovered very well. <laughs> I just sort of let you hang there. I could have saved you, and I, I did. <laughs> probably made for a better show that you didn't. Uh, <laughs> probably more interesting than my boring. You know, the same thing every week. I, I decided I wanted to look at the camera, and I'm like, I'm going to make eye contact today, and then I just got lost. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get for eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the week we missed was kind of a dead week, anyway. So we did. You don't. We're gonna bring the highlights from that week to this episode. But uh, the main thing regarding this week's episode is obviously the Batman. Yes, the Batman starring Robert Pattinson as uh, both Bruce Wayne and Batman in a movie directed by Matt Reeves, who is uh, becoming one of the most reliable blockbuster directors there is. He did uh, the Planet of the Apes movies, the most recent ones, and was fantastic there. And he's just keeps getting better uh, at his, at his gig. He's just, he's just phenomenal at telling these types of stories, uh, big epic stories with big epic storylines. And uh, here he's telling a, a, he's using Batman to tell a really cool murder mystery story that starts at the, very top of the power levels of Gotham City. And uh, even as it has sort of a, just a very almost benign setting, you know, just corruption would be basically where we're starting from. But it's really cool. Uh, Robert Pattinson is is fantastic as Batman. And the, the introduction of him in the early scenes, this uh, tremendous voiceover that they used at the very beginning and the very end is just really smartly placed and and well used but the the best part of this movie for me was paul dano who uh, takes control of this movie early on and really just just dominates the proceedings in many ways just just when he's not on screen you're thinking about where he is he's the poochie of this movie uh he's, he's the riddler is just such a great character in his hands and he's taken this character that has been you know sort of uh uh, yeah, I never. You know, Frank Gorshin and, and Jim Carrey kind of made the character their own in their own way, very outsized, very uh, different. Uh, and he takes and, and turns the Riddler into this very dangerous character who is uh, psychotic, uh, but psychotic with a purpose. And everything that he does and everything that Batman does all makes perfect sense. There's a logical puzzle being built throughout this entire movie that really adds up to something that really advances the character of Batman throughout. And that's really, it's just so clever. I especially, I, I liked the way that they portrayed Bruce Wayne in this movie is just uh, a guy who doesn't go out much. He doesn't like being known in public. This is not the Bruce Wayne that uh, Christian Bale played. This, this guy's haunted by the deaths of his parents to the point where he doesn't want to be involved in anything. He just wants to be out of the limelight. 
but he does want to do his part. And that's where Batman comes in. And uh, I, I loved that. Then Andy Serkis brings a whole new energy to Alfred. Like they've re- revamped that character. And you know, Serkis has a whole new way of playing him, but also uh, a, a different way that he and Bruce Wayne exist together. So that's really great. And then uh, the, the Catwoman dynamic is new and fresh and different. Uh, thanks to, to Zoe Kravitz. Uh, is very, very sexy, very, very you know just capable uh i I just i just i love everything about this movie colin farrell is completely unrecognizable playing the role of uh of the penguin you won't i mean you don't even know that's colin farrell for the most part which kind of makes you wonder why they even bother hiring him but nevertheless (laughs) but uh then there's john torturo who takes a character that was rather just maybe one of the weaker aspects of the, of the Nolan Batman movies played. I think it was Tom Wilkinson played. I mean, nothing against Tom Wilkinson, just the character was more functional in that movie. Whereas here he, he, he has something to do really, really, he's really deeply involved in Turturro gives the character a whole new life and energy here. But I, I love the fact that also that the way the DC is playing Batman is that you can have, they all exist. Like they all exist in their own sort of multiverse. You can bring these together just like you could Spider-Man, you know, the multiverse. And I kind of love that. I kind of love that all of these Batman characters have similar stories and similar players, but they can all be played in different ways and they find new and different ways to use these characters and tell different stories. And this one, like I said, is a straight ahead murder mystery that has political corruption. And just, I, I just, I loved it. I really had a great time watching this. I liked it a lot. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard for me to sit there and say I'll love a blockbuster ever again. <laughs> uh, but everything about it was good. And I mean, when it comes to blockbusters, Batman's one of my favorite characters. And in a lot of ways, he has the best villains, uh, especially if done right. I mean, obviously, there's no better villain than the Joker and Heath Ledger. Uh you're never going to top that, but you know, Joaquin Phoenix came close to a lot of people. And now you got Paul Dano right there in the conversation with as very close to as good of a main villain, uh, in a superhero movie or a blockbuster. Uh, it, it was, it's long, very, very long, but I don't, you could tell it's long, but it's not like you're miserable. Like you're enjoying being in the moment and in the movie, uh, you're not waiting. For, you're not looking at your watch, waiting for it to end. Uh, and it, it takes its time. It's, I mean, it's it's perfect for what it is. Uh, there's been a lot of Batman movies in my life, <laughs> uh, and this one is another one, and it's very good. Uh, it's there's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of bad ones. <laughs> I don't really. Uh, the, I mean, Paul Dano's amazing. Uh, yeah. I do like what you had to say about Robert Pattinson. And, I mean, he's not a kid, but he's also not not a kid. I don't know. He kind of comes off more as a, ki- of a more like a kid than the other Bruce Waynes do uh, in, in the proper way. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, I love, you know, the just the makeup around the eyes, how he's covering himself when he goes out. I mean... If you go back and watch Batman Returns, when Michael Keaton takes his mask off, one scene he's got the black shit under his eyes, the next scene you yeah. can see his bare eyes, and then he pulls the mask <laughs> off. Uh, right. And they got better over the years, you know, trying to make it make sense. But I, in a lot of ways, they made it made sense more, made it make sense more in this version than any of them. Uh, yeah. Which one's the greatest? I don't know. Probably still The Dark Knight. But this is very. I mean, at this point, who cares? This is very good. There's no reason to. There's nothing bad you could say about this movie. Yeah. Uh, other than uh, you know, it's a lot of these great actors could have been doing the Lighthouse and the Swiss Army Man, and <laughs> you know, that's the only bad thing I can say about it is that. But as a blockbuster, it's it's very, very, very good and. I don't know. I just everything about it was just smart. There's no real weak points. Uh, trying to find something I can complain about. There's really everybody. Zoe Kravitz is amazing. Uh, really a standout performance. Like I, I mean, I know she's already a star, but I'd like to see her. There's no reason she can't get to the next level. 
Uh, she she introduces this element of chaos to the plot because you, the, the really the, the plot is all together. Like it's a completed puzzle that uh, only Batman really can't see. And then she's just this chaos agent who just comes in and mixes up everything because she keeps kind of blowing the plan uh, of, his, of his investigation. I just kind of loved that the, the way they use her is so smart. And, and of course, there's a there's a bit of a twist to who she really is. And that was that was well played as well. So I, I, I dug that. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is great to bringing a whole other energy to to the Jim Gordon character, and oh, yeah. uh, I loved I loved the way they started. They, they're not going to have us, you know, go through him Jim Gordon having to meet Batman. Like we're two years into him being Batman when we join this story, and Jim Gordon's already already knows who he is. They've already got the bad signal, and when this big thing happens at the very start of the movie. He brings Batman into the room to get the story started. No waiting around. None of that. You do get one brief moment where there's somebody who goes, why is he here? He's a vigilante. We get that for a moment, but that is that never that doesn't overstay its welcome thankfully and we get on we get back to the we get back to business we get on to business this movie just doesn't uh it doesn't screw around and i really appreciated that yeah and when it when they do do that i mean those guys are essentially bad guys that are doing it so it makes more sense than in some of the previous movies in a lot of ways if they wanted you know we just talked about a couple weeks ago the texas chainsaw massacre and how that was a direct sequel to the original this could have been a direct sequel to the Bruce Wayne, the Michael Keaton version, if you really wanted it to be. Uh, you would have had to change the Batman character around a little bit, but otherwise, this would have been a way better Batman Returns. But I'm glad they didn't try it. They just it made its own thing in its own little yeah. world, and I appreciated that about this. And uh, horror movies should take advantage of that and just you know tell your own version. These multiverse. You don't have to make it a multiverse, but, you know, allowing you this. Know, go ahead. Comic book comic books have been doing this for years right. where there's there could be, you know, 15 different versions of Batman. You know, and nobody says anything because nobody cares about who the actor playing a guy in a comic book is. There's no actor playing somebody in a comic book. Uh, and they might, you know, want the same artist or something, but you know, the art style to be the same in particular books. But they have like. There's there's young Batman, there's old man, there's future Batman, there's the the Batman who, you know, is near death. Like there it is training the next Batman. Like there's so many different ways that comic books do Batman, and it's kind of kind of cool to see movies beginning uh, to sort of embrace that. Obviously, I don't think DC is probably going to make another Batman movie that isn't Robert Pattinson right away. But I could I would think it would be cool if they did. I I would love to see them bring back uh, Affleck and have him do his own Batman movie, you know, like the, I would, I think we can all finally start to embrace the idea that it doesn't have to be the same Batman all the time. Right. And that, you know, them totally messing up justice league with whatever they did, uh, allowed me to get there better. You know, the Marvel by them not messing it up, <laughs> you know, made it hard for me to want to accept that. But I, I think I'm there. Uh, I mean, I don't think you could bring the Joker into this world, and it doesn't look like they're going to. Based on no, no, they got their ends. own Joker here. So yeah, I love that. And I love who they chose to play him. I mean, Barry Keegan is one of my favorite actors of the moment. He's one of the most unique and unpredictable actors in the world. And I'm him playing Joker. I am all in. <laughs> I want that. I want that so bad. They didn't promise a sequel either in this movie, which is nice. They they kind of gave you an idea there could be one, but they didn't promise it. Well, they yeah, they took their time with making this movie too. But the other thing is all like, and the other Batman's have had this, but not like this, where you've got the Penguin, you've got Catwoman, you got the Riddler. I mean, even the Joker makes an appearance. You got the Marconi, and then what's the uh, the one uh, Falcone? Is that the other mob? Guy? You got all these villains. Oh, Maroni and Falcone. Yeah. yeah, you got all of them that. Ex- I mean, Maroni, you don't really see is here about, but they all kind of exist already in this world, and that that alone is pretty cool. And you know, it would be neat to see. You know, I remember watching the cartoon when I was younger, and how they would break out of jail and they're, you know, they'd work together and even Batman 66, nobody's really brought that idea fully to a, a motion picture version of Batman. And I, I'd be interested in seeing where they go with it, but 
if they don't go either, I'm, o- I'm perfectly okay. This is a standalone, really good movie. I want to challenge Hollywood to do a a new version of a sort of an Adam West style Batman that is that embraces sort of a that comedy element. Wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah, like make Batman. the main make the main make the main villain Egghead, <laughs> the Milton Berle character yeah. Egghead. I would go for it. So somebody in Hollywood do that. Write that script. Get on that. I want to see that movie. Yeah, I mean it's going to be hard to. I mean because the Lego Batman works so well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's so much easier to do as a cartoon. Even the pet superhero movie they're doing, I don't know how good uh, yeah. that looks, but that's another attempt at doing something different. But, you know, they're also making Batman a dick and Lego Batman. It'd be cool to see, <laughs> you know, just a goofy version. And you probably could do it, a lighthearted Batman. I'm sure it could be done. Uh, I'd like to imagine it's possible, but I would love to see it. You know they're going to cast Ryan Reynolds and you're going to hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll get Ryan Gosling or something. I don't know. <laughs> I like that idea. Uh, anything else on the Batman? Did you stick around for the after credit screenshot? <laughs> I did not. I I didn't either. I just read about it. And I guess it's just a question mark with that website they go to in the middle of the movie. Uh, yeah. And I think people were trying to log into that. I don't really know what that means. I, I think, and that was a goodbye question mark. Like, are they doing a sequel or not? Yeah. Uh, which I think is a cool uh, little thing, but also not worth the end of the credits for. Because it's already long. But I, I mean, it, my son liked it. He was very excited with all the different bad guys in the same movie uh i will say the one thing i thought was a little on the lazy side was the use of the nirvana song i think it fit but it was almost too perfect and i just it's like i don't know Uh, i loved the score the score was phenomenal michael uh giacchino uh, did that and just the the, especially during the big chase scene with uh, batman and penguin that was phenomenal but yeah that they're playing that Nirvana song. And then like five minutes it's after they're playing it, my son just starts singing Black Hole Sun. I'm like, it's not that one. <laughs> like, and at one, we're in the theater, so shut up. <laughs> Two, you got the wrong song. Three, I was like, wow, they do kind of sound alike. <laughs> I never really noticed that till now. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's the closest thing to a critique I have is that it's almost too perfect for me. Uh, but otherwise, everything about it, just really, really well done. Anything else before we move on? No, it's really, really good. It doesn't feel like three hours. Everybody should go see it. How did it do? Did really well. Uh, took it over 120 some odd million at the box office. I think it's probably behind Spider-Man still, but uh, yeah, did it did really well. I think the only reason it's probably behind Spider-Man is because it's you know, three be- hours long. <laughs> well, that the gimmick behind Spider-Man as well probably helped out. <laughs> I mean, if you had Ben Affleck and Michael Keat coming back for this, <laughs> everybody would have, there'd have been a, mil- a billion dollars opening weekend, <laughs> even at three million, three hours. Uh, all right, let's move on to asking for it. Asking for it stars uh, Kiersey Clemens as a young girl who uh, is living in a small town, works as a waitress. She meets up with an old high school friend who uh, talks her to go get, talks her into going to a party with him. He ends up uh, raping her and she kind of goes into a tailspin until she uh, meets up with a character played by Alexandra Ship, who takes her under her wing and takes her to this place where a lot of women get together for kind of a safe space to uh, be away from men and feel safe, but also be able to party and, and get down and have a good time. Uh, secretly, this space is also a place where a character played by Rada Mitchell has gathered a group of these young women together to enact revenge where they can on various different men who've done horrible things, such as a, a college, do- college, uh, so, uh, what do they call it? Uh, fraternity okay. that is committed. Yeah. That committed a, a rape and then got away with it. Uh, they they uh, gather their people together. They go there and they 
figure out a way to expose the fraternity, I think. Uh, then there's uh, the big target of the movie is a character played by Ezra Miller, who is this sort of men's rights advocate, uh, this uh, former, he's a former pickup artist. I don't know if you know who Roosh V is, but that's the kind of character they're going for here. He's this former pickup artist turns men's rights, men's rights activist who's becoming sort of very violent in protecting men's rights. Uh, and Ezra Miller plays that character really well. It's unfortunate how much the movie lets him down because he's not the real bad guy in the movie. They've got another bad guy who's not nearly as interesting <clears throat> as Ezra Miller's character. Uh, Ezra Miller's character really gets kind of a kind of a short shrift because the he he has the most charismatic uh, performance in the entire movie, and yet he's not featured particularly in the movie but then this movie is just all over the place it has a lot of big ideas asking for it is certainly a provocative title and they attend intend everything in the movie to be provocative but in the end it's a lot of posturing and it's really using it that that sort of strong female char- character archetype and this uh, you know female revenge fantasy is sort of a marketing gimmick rather than an actual story to be told and you know, there was a far better version of this made already. It was called Burn It All, and it starred Elizabeth Cotter just last year. That movie was phenomenal, and it contains all the energy of this movie in just one line. Anything you can do, I can do bleeding. It's still a better line than anything even remotely in this movie. That one line, I mean, it's better than anything right. in this movie. It's a shame. Uh, there's, you know, there was potential here, but realistically, the, they made this movie just as a as a marketing gimmick and didn't really actually care about making a statement of any kind in terms of, you know, being a feminist movie or a feminist action movie or of any sort. That's a shame. Uh, yeah, it, whenever you can see the marketing department there helping you <laughs> make your movie, it's never that's the way it feels. Well. Yeah, it feels like somebody gave notes. <laughs> Yeah, that's just disappointing. Uh, Dear Mr. Brody. Dear Mr. Brody is fascinating. Have you ever heard the name Michael Brody before? No. In 1970, he inherited a fortune from his family, a margarine company uh, that uh, no longer exists, uh, left him with this uh, multi-million dollar fortune. And at the time, he was 24 years old. He was a hippie. Uh, he'd just gotten married to a girl he just met. He's uh, flying back in a jet that he just, you know, he, uh, on a commercial airline, but he bought every seat in it because he just wanted it for him and his wife. So he's throwing his money around everywhere. But then when he arrives back in New York, he calls a, he calls a press conference because if you're a millionaire, you can do that. And he gets at least one reporter to show up, and he tells the reporter, I'm giving away my fortune. Here's my phone number. Here's my address. Tell the world I'm giving all my money away to whoever needs it. Uh, this reporter takes that story, writes it up. Then uh, Walter Cronkite hears about it and, and gets Michael Brody on his show. And Michael Brody repeats it. He says, yes, I'm giving away my fortune. This is my address. This is my phone number. Get in touch with me and I will send you money. Uh, and from there, within four days, he's inundated with phone calls with people showing up at his house with letters pouring in from every corner of the country to the point where he immediately starts to lose it because he can't sleep because it's 24 hours a day of his phone never stopping of people outside of his house of these letters showing up of people calling and saying hey we've got more letters for you get them out of here (laughs) do something with them the story here picks up then today where uh, a producer, a film producer by the name of Edward Pressman, who's a relatively famous uh, movie producer, he intended to one day make a movie about, about Michael Brody, and he never did. And it turns out that it, in the process of, of acquiring the life rights and writing the script, he, he had t- taken it a bunch of these letters that had been written to Michael Brody, because in the end, thousands upon thousands of these letters were never opened. They arrived, they were put in storage, and just never opened. He gave a bunch of them to Edward Pressman, who saved them in a storage locker. And his his assistant happens to be a producer on this movie. And so she took the letters and she began opening them up and reading them. And she decided to, as part of this documentary, seek out the people who sent these letters. And these are some very emotional stories from very poor, very desperate people. Some con men, some liars, some people with outlandish ideas, but 
Some of them are very emotional, like a woman who wrote to Michael Brody asking for help because her father was an alcoholic who couldn't read. The family was living in a shack with no electricity and you know, six kids and herself. And she has a very strained relationship with her mother. And then the producer says, well, hey, we've got another letter that came from that same address. And it happens to be from her mother, who also wrote to Michael Brody asking for help. Mm-hmm. And it's this very emotional story. Uh, that happens several times, and that becomes really the focus of the movie as opposed to Michael Brody, who there's still a lot of questions about Michael Brody. Was he for real? Did he even have a fortune? Was he just really high? Uh, did he, he was on LSD the entire when he, when he made this big pronouncement. Uh, so it's hard to know whether or not he was for real or not. And uh, I think the fortune existed. I don't know. But there's still so many letters to the point where they actually started a foundation so that they could open these letters and return them to the people who wrote them. That's a whole other movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, this is an incredible documentary and I do recommend it for everyone. It sounds very interesting. I mean, yeah, even the, the fact that his phone never stopped ringing and people were showing up is one thing, but then I got to imagine everything he's reading is for the most part, a sad, like a horrible story. So it's also, you know, killing his buzz, more or less. <laughs> right. Uh, that would, yeah. It sounds, I, uh, I didn't even know that was, a, that ever happened. The thing about it, it's so weird, because, like, today, Michael Brody doesn't, he was the most famous person in the world for, like, several months. And today, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. That just seems crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure it's like back then, that's what they called your 15 minutes of fame. Now, everybody has, it's like <laughs> different, but yeah, I don't, that's weird. Yeah, I just, that's so It is a wild, it is a wild story. I'll have to check that one out. Is it like rented on Amazon iTunes or is it like It is available now, somewhere? yes. All right. Available for rent now everywhere. No exit. No Exit stars a woman by the name of Havana Rose, who uh, plays a woman who is in drug rehab, who whose mother is dying. And she wants so she's going to sneak out of the, the rehab and try and get to where her mother is so she can say goodbye. Unfortunately, when she does this, she happens to be in the middle of one of the worst snowstorms in, in ever. Like, it's just awful. Uh, so she gets turned around by a cop who tells her she can't go- keep going because the roads are out. She ends up at this, uh, this uh, what do you call it, a, on the side of a highway, what a, rest area, a rest stop, where there are several other people, a couple, an older couple, and these two younger men. And each of them is trying to contact the outside world with really no, not much luck in the middle of nowhere place. Uh, as she's going out to, to try and once again try and get her phone to work, she comes across a van, and inside the van, she can hear somebody knocking. And when she looks inside, there's a little girl taped up and being held in the back of a van. So whatever of these group of people that are in this, in this road st- roadside stop, one of them is at least a kidnapper. <laughs> and she's going to try and figure out who it is, but also try and rescue this little girl. This movie sucks, unfortunately. It's a clever premise. <laughs> Everything about uh, it sounded great until you said this movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? It sounded really intriguing, didn't it? Yeah. They totally waste that, unfortunately. They keep giving they give away the 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 plot very early. Uh they they tell you who who did this, even though they do have a couple of twists, then they use a lot of real narrative shortcuts to to try and make this plot work from there. The final act is a complete disaster it just completely goes off the rails and it's really unfortunate because havana rose is very is a very good actress she's really compelling and i was really into what she was doing and dennis haysbert who i love and yeah. one of the you know terrific actor gets a one really great moment and then that's it <laughs> you know and it's really unfortunate just how they how they blow this in fairness the part i liked about what you were describing is basically hateful eight so maybe that's why I liked it. <laughs> yeah. So never mind. It's really not that original of an idea. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the desperate hour.
The Desperate Hour, another crappy movie. This one stars uh, Naomi Watts and really just Naomi Watts. Uh, the idea here is that uh, this uh, woman has two kids. She's taken, she's sent them off to school for the day. She's not sur- sure if her teenage son got up to go to school or not, but she thinks he did. And she goes off on a run and she goes off to, to run and ends up uh, running off into the forest several miles away. She gets to and in the middle of nowhere when she gets a call that there's been some sort of incident in her son's school. Uh, essentially, what she's coming to find is that there is a uh, an active shooter incident at the school and she's kind of piecing together information from uh you know whatever source she can get her hands on whether it's you know a brief signal of a of a live youtube broadcast or a friend who's nearby the school or other parents uh but she can't seem to get her son on the phone uh that's when she finds out from a police detective who tells her that uh, starts asking her questions about her son and we get to the idea that perhaps her son might be the one who is responsible for this that he might be the active shooter uh this movie is terrible though really i mean as much work as naomi watts puts into this she's a tremendous actress but this is a terrible premise for a movie trying to make a school shooting into a into a pulse pounding thriller is a terrible idea just from from the get-go and and just i know this is a night yeah this is a movie that came about uh, because of the pandemic and you know a way to make a movie with during a pandemic is to have a movie where it's just one character in her phone. That's it. That's all you have in this movie. And while, again, Naomi Watts puts in the work, she's just putting in the work on something that's really not worth working on, which, again, is... Uh, and this is Philip Noyce. Philip Noyce is not a bad director. He's made a lot of bad movies. He's not a bad director. He directed Rabbit Proof Fence, which is a pretty terrific movie. He did The Quiet American, which is another really great movie. But this is just completely misguided. And I think this might be just sort of an Australian sensibility, like he doesn't quite get the American culture that we're a little bit sensitive about school shootings because maybe they don't have that many of those in Australia. And so his, his sort of, uh, I don't want to just, he's, he doesn't connect with us emotionally and he doesn't connect with this story emotionally. And so thus he treats it like an average movie thriller. And that's really just not the way to treat a drama about a school shooting. So it's not simply that it's in poor taste. It's, it's there's more to the problem than just the fact that it's in poor taste or yeah okay i mean it's not it's not like it's poorly made or anything it's just the the idea of it is so wrong that it it can't seem to overcome just how wrong it is yeah i mean the idea of her going for a run (laughs) like you're going to exercise and now you can't get a hold of anybody seems kind of weird i like hard to buy into that part of it i mean i Unless she was running away from something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, I I do think it's an interesting to look at the perspective of a parent who has to deal with that, but not make it necessarily an action thriller. Right. So, uh, yeah. All right. Let's move on to a movie I thought for sure you were going to hate, and then I read your review. <laughs> Studio 666, <laughs> the Foo Fighters horror movie. Studio 666 stars the Foo Fighters, the whole band, uh, in a uh, horror comedy directed by uh, B.J. McDonald. And uh, this is uh, basically the idea is they're making their 10th record. They're looking for a cool place to to record. Their uh, manager, played by the perfectly awful Jeff Garland, uh, gives them an idea of a place to go that happens to have a bit of history. Uh, It was a place where where he doesn't tell the band this, but it's a place where a band from the nineties had been uh, brutally murdered by one of their own members. Uh, they get there. And of course it's kind of got an evil energy and Dave is really into the evil energy and the rest of the band is kind of, like, yeah, whatever. Uh, Dave goes on a little quest and he kind of discovers a little bit about the, the house. He ends up getting uh, taken over by a demon and well, violent shit happens from there this movie's hilarious these guys are having such a great time and that's really the key here and if anybody had tried to play this straight it would it would just be painful and hard to watch it would be just a sort of an ugly grindhouse sort of thing but you can tell that dave grohl and these guys were like 
in what ways can we just get totally murdered in the worst, most gory fashion possible? Please do something terrible to me. I want to see myself die on screen. And that energy, that that energy is just so much fun. They are having such a great time doing this that I couldn't resist it. it it's part like Three Stooges, part the Looney Tunes, and then part just uh, like serious horror movie like there's an element of not seriousness but like they play it straight they play the the whole scenario they play it kind of straight but at the same time it's so loony it's so over the top in other ways that it that it becomes funny and that combination it's such a tightrope to walk between what they're doing in terms of the hardcore violence and gore and the comedy that they're getting they it's such a tightrope and yet they walk it so perfectly to where you're still laughing but you're also kind of like oh that's so gross right (laughs) i really i really loved it i was really impressed yeah, I mean, I, I felt like the whole time they were walking around going, how can we make this dumber? Uh, but in, like, the right, like, they're not, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I thought the Pearl Jam high five, every time they did that, would just have me on the floor laughing. Uh, and not everything had to land because they, they were having fun. So even when they didn't land the jokes, it was still, yeah. it was still a fun experience. Uh, but a lot don't land, and that's why I was like, I don't know if, and uh, on a lot of ways, this reminded me of that uh, Kristen Bell show on Netflix. Yeah. Minus the gore. I mean, this or plus the gore. <laughs> Her show didn't have it. But it, it's the same type, type of thing. It's fun. It's intentionally stupid. Uh, but it, it, it works. I mean, it's not going to work for everybody because it is intentionally stupid. And a lot of people are going to be like, I don't want to watch this. But <laughs> someone who's a fan of the, the band and people. I mean, Carrie King from Slayers in this movie as a roadie. And he is amazing. And John Carpenter's in this movie, <laughs> and he scores it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, great. That's great stuff. And, I mean, just they, <laughs> those things make it good without it being good. <laughs> they, they loved doing this so much, they made an entire record as that 90s band that, that, that is murdered at the very start of the movie, whose music you don't even really hear all that much. <laughs> right. <laughs> And like, that, good for you for being so committed to this. And I, I love the song that they're playing. Like it has no lyrics, but it's like the it's the greatest riff of all time. I just loved that. <laughs> it was such a good, it was very, very tenacious D energy in that, which I really I that really hit that really hit home with me. Oh yeah, I I would listen to that song for real. I mean it was forty <laughs> minutes long with no ending. Uh, <laughs> oh. Just, There's one point where where Dave Grohl is levitating. It was like that was when I got it. Like when I saw him levitate, and they're just kind of in the, they're doing a kind of a Three Stooges background gag. I was like, yes, okay, this is my movie. And they all get to. I mean, it's, they all get to have their own little Scooby Doo moment or whatever. And it's, <laughs> I mean, even the supporting characters were good. Whitney Cummings was having a lot of fun. Uh, oh my God, Jackal. The use yes. of by Jackal is so great. That was that was amazing. That was a moment that uh, that could have t- they could have gone wrong so many different ways, but they just somehow nailed the tone of that to make that work. Well, and I saw an interview with Dave Grohl, and it was that hot sauce show where he's eating chicken wings, and it gets hotter and hotter every episode. First of all, the best episode of that chicken wing show called Hot Ones ever done was was. Dave Grohl on it, number one. But number two, he was like, they're talking about the movie, and he's like, this, they really just want to make like a stupid video, like YouTube thing, and they were just like, really? You're going to give us that budget to make this piece of shit? Uh, but it, I kind of regret that now, I imagine. <laughs> I don't know. How, I mean, I don't know how much money they truly gave them, but I mean, they were literally talking about doing this yeah. in their backyard kind of thing, which you could have done. Wouldn't it look quite Sadly, as good? This movie bombed badly. Yeah, but they never. I don't succeed. get that. I don't understand why people did embrace this. This movie's awesome. <laughs> I think it. This is the type of movie that can have a second life, though. Um, I hope so. I really do. This is this deserves a cult. This deserves like an audience that loves it because it's so wonderful. Yeah, I think it's definitely a movie that can make its money back on demand and streaming and at midnight. Thing. It's a perfect midnight movie. That was, that was probably where it belonged, really. Maybe not in theaters. <laughs> I, I was shocked it was only in theaters. That really 
you know, put it with the album. Reason to buy the physical copy of the record. Cut a couple bucks off, and you can still probably look as good. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Still, uh, I loved it. I recommend it. I think uh, whether you're a Food Fighters fan or not, this is, this is, this is horror comedy done right. Yeah, it does help being a Foo Fighter fan, though. <laughs> uh, or a Slayer fan, because Carrie King is in it. Uh, let's move Krug! on. Oh, he was so... And, you mean, he's a guy that you don't... That everybody always wants to take seriously, because he's, you know, in the heaviest band ever, and he's just a goofball in this, and he's... I don't know. I love the way they kill each other. Everything about it was just great. Oh, so great. Speaking, so great. And let's go total 180 and <laughs> our classic it, it, which, total garbage. And we knew it was going to be garbage. We knew it's one of the worst movies of all time and not in the room type of way, but like in just like really the really bad, not even in a fun, bad way. Uh, maybe a little bit fun, bad, but for the most part, not really. It's Sergeant Pepper's only hardest club band. Uh, BG, yeah. uh, Peter Frampton, Steve Martin, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Earth, Wind & Fire, Billy Preston, Donald Pleasance, all-star cast, piece <laughs> of crap. Yeah, the, we really, I, I really wanted Kiss versus the fandom. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> really, find it. Yeah, I know. It's not available, uh, which really bummed me out. I, that would have been a more perfect companion to this, I assume. I, I mean, I'm... I've heard that movie is pretty terrible as well, but probably terrible in a better way than this is terrible. This is this is just this is awful in a way that it's just not fun because it's taking something that that we absolutely love in the music of the Beatles and making it into something that is just the Bee Gees. awful. Like like if you want to understand what what makes a band great, it's like take take something like this. It just kind of shows you the Beatles were amazing. For a reason, because <laughs> the Bee Gees and P- Peter Frampton are not terrible artists, but they cannot play the Beatles. They can't do it. They're terrible at it. They, they're just awful at it. Every song they perform is awful and trying to make these into literal representations of a story is just I mean, it is such a misbegotten idea from beginning to end, on top of which. They're such bad actors that they actually cut all the dialogue from this movie. Like they don't let these guys talk at all because they can't <laughs> act at all. So they have them singing the entire time. Oh man. And then they've got like these awful insert characters to do any of the little bits of talking. Like that's why George Burns exists for the most part is to handle all of the dialogue in the movie. <laughs> and he's bad in this movie. Like, the idea of allowing him to sing a Beatles song was just, it's just cruel. It's, it's cruel to him. It's cruel to the Beatles. It's cruel to us. You know, Steve Martin does something, but he's, he, this is the worst performance of his career. Like, yeah, it's all just embarrassing from beginning to end. Alice Cooper is embarrassing. Like it's just, I, I I didn't enjoy this in in any kind of way. Where I don't even enjoy making fun of it because it's not even fun in that way. I feel bad for these people that they that they endured this, that they went through this movie and have to live with the fact that this movie exists. But then you read afterwards, like I sent you a quote from Robin Gibb talking about how this is made in 78. So it's like less than a decade since the Beatles are gone. And Robin Gibb is like, well, nobody remembers the Beatles anymore. And after this, no one's everybody's going to associate us with Sgt. Peppers instead of them. Like, wow, what drugs were you on? I mean, get me some of those because you clearly you're so very, very high. <laughs> Do not give me the drugs Aerosmith was on. <laughs> they didn't know they were in the movie. <laughs> Did they not look so fucked up? Like, in not, I mean, we're laughing now, but it. Because they're, you know, now they're old, and if they die, they'll be die of old age. But then they did not look in good shape at all. Oh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> they also didn't know they were the villains. Is that right? <laughs> I well, I, there was like I think at one point they want like Barry Gibb was supposed to kill Steven Tyler, and he was like, well, he can't do it. And I think I don't even remember who killed him. Peter Frampton, maybe. Uh, uh, no, he died accidentally from uh, whatever strawberry. Oh did. yeah. He, didn't they, they? Didn't he knock her off with him or something like yeah. that? And they both died. Yeah. 
Uh, but that, yeah, it was just kind of stupid shit like that. I mean, it. That said, you know, the only two good things I can say about it is, and I think their version of "Come Together" is fantastic. I think the Earth Wind Wind and Fire song was good. Other than that, <laughs> I didn't yeah. really like anything about it. Even Billy Preston, who was like the fifth Beatle for a time, comes off badly in this movie. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's. And it, it, it's really just, I don't know how you do this without the Beatles. Uh, it would have been cool to have them make a movie about that era of the band because they did such a great job with their early stuff. Yeah. You could, I don't I don't really know. It would have to be, I don't know. This was just stupid. Uh, <laughs> it's really, just, a, just such a bad idea. Just such a bad idea. They, I, at a certain point, you feel like you, you can, you feel like they know it's a bad idea. <laughs> like you get the sense that each of them, as they're trying to sing these and perform these Beatles songs, like, yeah, no, this isn't working, is it? We shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> like, I, I think that's Peter Frampton's entire performance. Honestly, is <laughs> like we shouldn't be doing this. Right. Well, I, I uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know though, because it's like they they there definitely was a lot of ego in this movie, and a lot of the, cocaine. Oh, that was that too. So much cocaine, and no, I mean, and just the era that they did it in doesn't make sense. You know, you're yeah. really getting head heavy into the disco era, uh, and the Beatles don't belong there, and it's just so bad. I'm surprised. Maybe I mean Kiss buried their movie because they know it's bad. Uh, I don't know what you can do about this with so many different people in it. They probably don't have control over it. So, oh, let's watch this movie and you know, <laughs> a Beatles movie with all these bands in it. This must be. Oh, wow, it sounds great. Steve yeah. Martin, he's revered. I mean, there's, no one says bad things about Steve Martin anymore. <laughs> I mean, even the Bee Gees did kind of come back eventually to being a band that people respected but oof oof that's all you can say watching this is so i i feel bad for these people i do and i don't they all made it out (laughs) yeah they all they're all doing just fine other than george burns (laughs) and a lot of the bgs long dead yeah all right that is pretty- unfortunately this is the reason why he went to hell but you know that's <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm sorry to break it to you ladies and gentlemen legendary entertainer george burns is in hell <laughs> <laughs> along with two of the bgs there's the title of the podcast right <laughs> yeah let's forget about the batman <laughs> <laughs> and SEO. Yeah, just... let's go with pure comedy. <laughs> <laughs> we do that too much here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in 1992, I didn't watch any of them, but we have a woman scorned, the Betty Broderick story, blame it on the bellboy, Gladiator, 92, the Gladiator, the Lawnmower Man, Meatballs 4, Once Upon a Crime. I know I've seen Meatballs 4 and the Lawnmower Man, but it's been a long time. <laughs> Gladiator is a really good movie, actually. That's this version, not the Russell Crowe version. That movie sucks. This one's actually pretty good. <laughs> Got uh, James Marshall and Cuba Gooding Jr. Brian Dennehy. It's uh, a boxing movie, but kind of an underground boxing movie. And uh, yeah, I, I I I saw that in the theaters back in '92 and really really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, really great uh, performance from from uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. And, and Brian Dennehy's awesome in it, actually. So that one I recommend. Uh, don't don't look up blame it on the bellboy that's very sad because pretty much everybody in that cast is well known and they're all dead <laughs> so, it's very it's very sad um the uh the Brady, betty broderick one is weird uh meredith baxter bernie plays the lead character who is a, a woman who murdered her husband played by the guy from seventh heaven who turned out to be a creep uh and and then they've actually made a sequel to this like five months later that t- took her through going to prison. And I think she was executed, I think. Yeah. Jeez. Weird story. 
Uh, Lawnmower Man, wow, just the, that remarkably offensive Jeff Fahey performance really does not stand up. <laughs> that is uh, that is uh, hard to watch. Has he ever been good? It, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, what have you seen Jeff Fahey in where he was actually any good? I've never seen him in a movie in the theater. I mean, maybe the Lawnmower Man went to the theater, but I didn't see it in the theater. <laughs> uh yeah, that's a shame. I'd like to see. Is he still alive? Jeff Fahey? Yeah, I'm assuming. He yeah, is. yeah. He was just in a movie earlier this month. Or last month. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because I was questioning you on why you watched it. <laughs> it was a terrible movie. <laughs> I'd like to see if Tarantino <laughs> could do something with him. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you just never know. Lawnmower Man is, is bad. It's a bad movie. It's very, very bad. Well, it's a bad, unwatchable. It's a stupid name, and I know at the time I was like, <laughs> "Ooh, that sounds messed up." But now that I'm forty, in my forties, it's like really lawnmower man. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Hal, I was reading Hal Hinson's review in the Washington Post, and God bless the Washington Post. They're the only you know newspaper company that posts old reviews on IMDb, and I love that about them. Uh, the he was talking about this movie. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the line he said because it was really it was really clever where he's talking about uh oh, now i've completely lost it uh never mind let's go read hal hinson's review it's on imdb <laughs> it's very clever <laughs> uh next week we've got adventures and success uh oh my god heckle is that the name of the movie yes starring um, steve gutenberg and Jeff Fahey. <laughs> He'd be more appropriate. <laughs> Batman and Me, uh, The Girl on the Mountain, Turning Red, Moon Manor, The Adam Project on Netflix, and A Song for Caesar. You said make sure we see Moon Manor. Uh, sounds like uh, the best movie of the week, maybe. Uh, we don't have a classic yet. Uh, nothing is come up on the podcast to make me want to pick a classic either <laughs> um maybe flick chart will do that 92 next we got american me article 99 howard and my cousin Vinny, one of my favorite movies of all time and then shakes the clown i mean uh, we do have another batman because that batman and me is a documentary about batman collectors we could do batman the sequel to the 89 batman <laughs> when does that turn 30 though <laughs> I don't know. Well, that right could be the yeah, corner. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Never mind. I don't know when that comes out. Uh, what's Moon Manor about? Moon Manor is about a uh, man who is uh, throwing his own funeral. He's uh, decided to uh, have, die via assisted suicide, but he's decided to throw himself a party first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting. I'm trying to think of what movies would be like that. Let's play a little flip yeah. chart if you're up for it and see sure. if we can come up with any other ideas while we're doing it. Heckle's about a stand-up comedian. Well, I'd We've say, already done the Robert De Niro movie. I'd say Lenny, but I don't really want to watch it now. <laughs> God, no. no not like Dustin it. Hoffman. No. Uh uh, Whale Rider when Harry met Sally. Whale Rider is really good, but when Harry met Sally is kind of iconic, so I got to go there. I agree. Crocodile Dundee, Private Parts. Private Parts, Violet. Yes. The Accountant, The Outsiders. The Outsiders. Wait, no, The Accountant. What am I talking about? <laughs> I was thinking of the wrong movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, The Accountant, yeah. I, so I love that. I loved Affleck in that movie. What am I talking about? It's crazy. I I hey, I, you know, returning just briefly to private parts, I was listening to uh, the Unspooled podcast, Paul Shear, and Amy Nicholson's podcast. They were doing a tribute to uh, Ivan Reitman, and they were talking about how he was the one who saved that movie because he watched an early cut and, uh, you know, he was kind of he was a producer on it and he talked to howard stern and and he's telling him like howard you suck <laughs> he got with howard stern, howard stern he's like howard you suck what are you doing 
And it was him who actually kind of rescued that movie and kind of taught Howard to just just be Howard, just be you. You know, stop trying to act. <laughs> and it worked. And uh, so Ivan Reitman actually is credited with saving private parts. That's cool. How far into it did they get before? It wasn't very long. Like uh, he, they, they, Stern was a Stern went to Ivan because he felt like he was failing pretty miserably. And, uh, and yeah, that that's when they had the big come to Jesus moment together. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, we're no angels. Saturday night fever. Saturday night fever. Still never seen that. Well, there you go. There's a classic. Yeah. Well, can't for the BGs to redeem themselves. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever. There you go. We found a classic. Watch it not be available. <laughs> <laughs> the Professional Two Weeks Notice. The Professional. Yeah, speaking of movies not being available, sorry I'm going off on tangents, no, but uh, there's a there's a great article today. I think it's in the Guardian about uh, there's this large number of movies that that are not available, like they've just been made, not made available due to mostly due to rights issues or just uh, companies like Carol Co that went out of business that you know the movies they had that were unable to sell or movies like uh, you know Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is a legendary movie with Diane Keaton that has been tied up in rights issues for years because of the music. There's a couple, there's a group now coming together that is trying to rescue those movies so they can find a way to get them out of their you know various forms of uh, you know development hell if you will and actually put them back out to the world to be able to see and I hope they really do succeed. Uh, the one they're really working hard on is the Heartbreak Kid, which is a legendary uh, Elaine May movie with Charles Grodin that uh, hasn't been available for years, despite being one of, you know, an all-time classic that's actually celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Wow. Uh, so check that out. It's in The Guardian. Uh, uh, check that out today. It's also on my Twitter feed if you want to see it there. Is it new movies, like newer movies, or is it just old classics? It's it's like it's movies from the all the way back to the 70s through maybe the 80s and 90s, like movies that just sort of slipped out of uh, distribution. I mean, I know and of, uh, are not available to stream as Kevin Smith fans try finding dogma right now. Uh, I don't know. Weird, what, right? Yeah, I, I think it has something to do with Harvey Weinstein, unfortunately. Uh, Luckily, but, I have two copies. So. Yeah, I have a bunch, <laughs> too. But yeah, I, I right before he got caught, he went to Kevin and said, what do you want to do dogma too?" And he started trying to develop it. And then obviously <laughs> shortly thereafter, <laughs> Everybody knew for sure he was a monster at that point. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, not to get off another tangent, Mark Maron's episode with Mira Servino is fantastic. Uh, I thought you were going to bring up another Maron interview. <laughs> I listened to that one too with Sam Elliott. the The sound bites do not match the context of what happened there. Uh, yeah. So that and it really I, sounded like an asshole. Yeah. It, the if you told pull up full out of context. Uh, he read a review of it of uh, what is it called? Uh, a, the power of the, the dog. Power of the dog. And the review said something about it erasing the American West or something like that, which is his career. His whole career is as a Western, and he was talking about how he felt it bothered him that you know they were basically throwing away everything he had done in in the context. All throughout right. the whole movie is a very you know very liberal movie. He's a very liberal man. Uh, it was just the context of that it was very unfair. I thought I disagree with him completely, but I definitely think the criticism was unfair if you listen to it in context. It's sure, but I mean, just the when you hear when you hear just the quotes where he's saying, "What does that woman know about making you about the American West?" That's pretty fucked up. I mean, has he not heard? I mean, here's a guy who's lived in the Western for a while. Has he not heard of Sergio Leone? You know, cause he made those movies in Italy. That's why they're called spaghetti Westerns. Uh, people from other countries can make movies about the West very easily. He, he does shit on Clint Eastwood <laughs> a little bit. And, uh, and a lot of his complaints with the movie and I don't, again, I disagree with him. Uh, but it's more of like the West is all about the family and this is all about men. You know, it's not about men. It's about the family and the, and again, the context of it was totally bullshit, and it's that's the problem with today's media. Is that you can totally tear someone apart out of context; it doesn't make sense. Yeah, 
Uh, it was should actually, probably watch the movie with before, before talking about it. Maybe might be a good idea. He did. It didn't sound like he'd see. He did. Oh, yeah. it didn't sound like it. Oh, he, he, <laughs> they spent more time on it, and he uh, it, it, he definitely watched it. Uh, but he was lost. He wasn't watching the movie. He was the idea of the movie. And Marin kind of would go back and forth because well, that's not the point of it. He goes, he goes, I know. And he goes, I'm just, I'm, I feel like I'm being erased, and I took it personal. And that is all of it, again, all the context was removed, and it was kind of a bullshit media post. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens. Anyway, uh, I do recommend that interview too. Actually, it was really good. Uh, the Sam Elliott one. Uh, a serious man or planet terror? Serious man. Yeah, and I also read another thing where I think it was Tarantino saying his worst movie ever did was Death Proof, and then somebody goes, "Yeah, Planet Terror was way better." <laughs> I thought you would enjoy that. Nah. <laughs> a walk in the spring rain. Seen that? No, never heard of it. Romeo Must Die, The Last Starfighter. They're both garbage. What do you want? <laughs> I've never seen Romeo Must Die, and I hate the last. I'm sorry, Last Starfighter fans. I just hate your movie. I'm just gonna refresh. Skyline Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. You say Tarantino and Barry. That's weird. Yeah. The Dirty Dozen, Unstoppable. Unstoppable, just because it's much shorter and really Denzel and Chris Pine are much more entertaining. Yeah. Dirty Dozen's good, but it's quite long. Yeah, it's not good enough to live up to the length, though, to make me pick it. <laughs> exactly. The Castle of Fu Manchu. Never seen that one. I've seen neither of those movies. That one looks pretty racist. <laughs> but the context, Sean, the context. <laughs> right. <laughs> Christopher Lee's <laughs> yellow face. <laughs> the context, I'm sure, makes that okay. <laughs> I'm kidding on that one. Uh, the producers, uh, the sisterhood of the traveling pants. Uh, the producers, but the sisterhood of the traveling pants doesn't get enough credit. I know people write that off as a little girls' movie, but it's actually really good. Benny, Honestly, Benny, no joke. <laughs> Benny and June, true romance. True romance. Shrek the Third Identity. Shrek the Third. Agreed. The Hangover Part Two, Father of the Bride. Hangover Part Two. The Help, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine. The Evil Dead, Final Fantasy VII. Uh, I don't think Final Fantasy is that. Was that? I've never. I don't think I've seen that. That, I don't think they've seen that version of it anyway. The Evil Dead Twins. The Evil Dead. That's very easy. Star Trek Insurrection. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The Muppet Movie, Elizabeth Town. I love the Muppet Movie, but Elizabeth Town holds a special place for me, so that one's, that one's my winner. Yeah, I'll let you have it. Maybe you'll return the favor later on. Mark Marin, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> One of the movies for you listening at home is the Mark Marin stand-up special, which is kind of really, really creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that, or that I mean, I, the stand-up special is not. It's actually quite good. But yeah. the fact that it's on here is it's weird. We always weird. joke about it, but that's really yeah. I was a little, little on the nose flick chart. <laughs> <laughs> Four weddings and a funeral, Animal House. Four weddings and a funeral. Yeah, I, feel, I think it's more consistently funny than Animal House is. Yeah, I don't. We've just it's a movie we never universally loved on the podcast. We don't hate it, but true. Bad Boys, Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift. That's tough for me. Honestly, these movies kind of are are kind of equal to me. I think Tokyo Drift doesn't get enough credit for being as cool as it is. Uh, bad boys slightly i'll take bad boys just a slightly bit over over tokyo drift though again i like tokyo drift due date misery misery due date should have been a lot funnier than it is yeah 
I agree. Fat Man and Little Boy, Ed TV. Fat Man and Little Boy. Claudia with a Chance of Meatballs, Masters of the Universe. Claudia with a Chance of Meatballs. I know. <laughs> I want to pick He-Man, though. So <laughs> That's an entertaining bad movie. You know, unlike, uh, unlike Sgt. Pepper's, which is just sad. Like, Masters of the Universe, you can, at least you can laugh at that in the right way. Right. And as a kid, I still... It was one of those movies I rooted for, but it was like, but he doesn't do the He-Man things. <laughs> He's got a laser gun. <laughs> Why isn't he blocking the lasers with a sword? <laughs> right? Why doesn't he ever say by the power of Grayskull? <laughs> Take all the fun out of it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Revolutionary Road, the man with the golden gun. Right, Revolutionary Road. As disappointing as that is, I'd rather watch that instead of a Bond movie. Lady Bird, the Born Ultimatum. Must love the Born, but I'd Lady Bird all the way. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite movies in the last ten years. Atari Game Over, the Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Uh, that, that Atari documentary is pretty good. It's about trying to find the the lost ET games, the ones that were back yeah, buried at I the bottom that. of yeah. That was good. The Dark Knight, Mummy of the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Not even close. This is the Dark Knight. All right. We'll end on the Dark Knight since it's a Batman podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. See you next week. Bye. See ya. See ya.